Well, happy Mother's Day to everybody. Try, try that again. Happy Mother's Day to everybody. Fantastic. Good. Hope you've all brought your mums a birthday present, a, a, a Mother's Day present, and a birthday present. I hope you brought them a birthday present. If you haven't, there's time still before lunch to get yourself to Tesco shop. I'm sure you'll find something there that your mum would appreciate, something that you can rescue the day if you've forgotten to do it. Here's a question that's going to divide the room, okay? Put your hand up if you call your mum, mum, spelled M-U-M. That's the wrong way, but you, if you do that, that's, okay, it's probably less than half. Put your hand up if you spell it the right way, which is M-A-M. Oh, and some of you haven't put your hands up at all, so presumably you don't write mum at all. Mum, very good, excellent. Well, when I buy my mum's birthday card and Mother's Day card, I always try and find her a card that spells it M-A-M. And if you can't find one, Clinton cards at Tesco and Kingston Park always have a nice selection of mum cards, okay? My mum is from Jarrow, and my dad's from Stockton. My mum still has quite a strong Geordie accent, even though she's been away from the Northeast for years. So I've always said mum. That's always how I've said it. That's always how I've spelt it. And I remember once being told off at primary school, because I'd obviously spelt it M-A-M, the teacher had corrected it. I'm really upset to my mum and said, what, what, what is this about? And she said, son, she said, they're wrong. It's spelled M-A-M, but when you're at school, you just have to go along with what they do at school. And so I've always done that ever since. Here's a picture of my mum with me and my two brothers. It's coming up any second. There we go. Picture of my mum with me and my two brothers. This was taken in 1976, the hot summer, high force waterfall. You can still go and you can try and recreate that shot if you want to go there. Next to me are my two brothers, Neil, my oldest brother, uh, and my younger brother, or my middle brother, Colin. Now, sadly for my mum and for lots of other people as well, my oldest brother, Neil, died of a brain tumor when he was 43. And a parent, and especially a mum, I don't think, should ever have to bury their own child. They should never have to see their own child die, and they should never have to bury their own son. No mum, no mam expects to have to do that. This is a picture of my mum now when she'd just given birth to my oldest brother, Neil, to her firstborn son, and with her is her mum and then her mum's mum. So three, four generations, in fact. Now, if you look, you can see where I get my nose from, can't you? That, that's the genetics strongly at work. And you can see my great, my nana there right on the, on the far side. And that's what this is going to look like when I get to that age, sadly. Well, Neil, my mum's firstborn son, uh, when he was born, he was not well. He wasn't well. And he, and he almost died, actually, at that point. But I don't imagine my mum ever really expected that she would have to bury her firstborn son. It's not what you expect. It's not what you imagine, is it, for all your kind of plans and dreams and hopes for your firstborn son, for your firstborn child. But as bad as it was for my mum, and as, as, as really traumatic as it was for her when she had to finally realize that her oldest son had died and she had to bury him and so on, it, it can't have been anything near as bad, as, as horrendous as it was for Mary, as she uh, watched her firstborn son be crucified there on the cross. We're going to read John's account of Jesus' crucifixion in a moment. John was, of course, an eyewitness of the crucifixion. He was stood at the foot of the cross watching as it took place. And he's the one that, that in the passage we, we're going to read, he refers to himself in the third person as the disciple that Jesus loved. So that's what we're going to read from this account. If you've got a Bible with you and you want to turn with me, it's John chapter 19. It's verses 16 to 37. If you haven't got a Bible or you just want to listen, that's fine. I'll read the verses and you can just listen as I read it. So uh, verse 16 of John chapter 19. 
says this, Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the, Jew, many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Must have been utterly horrendous for Mary to watch her firstborn son nailed naked to a wooden cross and then to see that cross raised up and dropped into its socket and to see her son there, her firstborn son, there naked, utterly traumatic, utterly terrorized as he was there hanging on that cross. To watch as a firstborn son hung there in utter agony and shame, bleeding from his hands and his feet and his lacerated back where he'd been whipped and from the crown of thorns that was thrust into his head. And to watch as he tried to get breath and push himself up so he could breathe and, and pushing himself up until the, the sheer agony of the pain of the nails in his hands and his feet would cause him to sink back down again. We, we can't know for sure what Mary was thinking, but I think it's reasonable to imagine that Mary's head must have been really filled with a whole confusing mixture of questions and, and, and doubts and, and just sheer kind of trauma and pain and agony. Mary had received all sorts of promises from God about her firstborn son. But as she stood there at the foot of the cross of Jesus with her sister and with John, she must have been so confused. She must have been so traumatized. Was this really how it was all meant to end? How did this fit in with what the angel had told her 30-odd years earlier? Before Jesus was born, had, had she got it all wrong? Had she just imagined everything that had happened all those years ago? And as amazing a woman as Mary must have been, she was nevertheless just an ordinary woman, just like any lady here this morning, with all the same emotions and, and challenges and feelings that every mother deals with and struggles with. I'm sure that as Mary stood at the foot of Jesus' cross, her mind must have gone back in time to the time around sort of 35 years or so earlier when the angel Gabriel had appeared to her. Luke chapter 1 verses 26 to 27 tells us that God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Now, if we're not careful, our familiarity with that verse which we read at Christmas every year, and we're kind of really familiar with it, it our familiarity will cause us to miss some massive issues, some massive things in that verse. Firstly, Mary was a virgin. She wasn't married. 
So when it became obvious that she was pregnant, everybody would assume that she'd been sleeping around. And that was just a complete no-no in the social uh, culture that she lived in, in that culture in first century uh, uh, Judaism. Secondly, she lived in Nazareth, which was a a very near Roman garrison, which was associated with things like gambling and drunkenness and prostitution. So it was the kind of pits of the place. Nobody wanted to live in Nazareth. In fact, somebody said about Jesus, can anything, any good thing come out of Nazareth? But it wasn't just the place that was the problem, it was the person. In, in, in Mary's world and culture, she was just a nobody. She was a woman, and not only that, but she was a single woman. She wasn't married. She was a nobody. She wasn't famous. She's not recorded as having any great virtues or abilities or strengths. So, so here is this teenage girl in this seedy, unpopular town, and suddenly one of God's chief angels, Gabriel, appears, and he greets Mary. Greetings, he says, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now, I'm not sure what Mary thought when she saw Gabriel. Again, we read these verses so often, and we kind of lose the impact. Imagine an angel appearing in your living room if you're a teenager. Whoa, what on earth is going on? It must have been a truly bizarre moment. I'm not sure what Gabriel thought as he finally saw the young woman that God had chosen to be the mother of his son. But look at what Gabriel says to her. He says, greetings, you who are highly favored. Now, the, the Greek word that's used here is the same root as our English word grace. And grace simply means undeserved favor. It's God treating a person in a way they don't deserve to be treated. Mary hadn't been chosen because she was somebody special. She hadn't been chosen because she was better than other people. It was simply an act of God's grace. In his grace, he had chosen Mary to be the mother of his only, his only begotten son. God chose a teenage virgin with no recorded qualities living in probably the least desirable town in the whole of Israel to give birth to his son. Luke tells us that Mary was greatly troubled. It's a huge under kind of statement, isn't it? Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. It's not every day God's chief angel shows up in your living room and tells you that you're about to give birth to God's son. But it wasn't that she was afraid of Gabriel. It, it, it was his words that worried her. And it's no wonder. But Gabriel reassured her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Wow, Mary was going to give birth to the Messiah. All young Jewish girls at that time, or, or, or guys for that matter, would have grown up with this expectation that the Messiah was coming, God's special and promised and anointed king who was going to come and, and be the king of kings and so on. Been promised for centuries. It was the one who was God, come as a human being, God the Son. Mary was actually going to be the one who was going to give birth to this special one. God chose a nobody, a, a teenage girl with no recorded great qualities, living in probably the least favored town in the whole of Israel to give birth to his son. But isn't that just what God does? The world values people based on their wealth, based on their education, their titles, their looks. But God doesn't work that way. Look at what he says, or look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 27. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Right throughout the Bible, God consistently uses the people that other people have written off 
the people that have written themselves off, perhaps, to achieve great things for him. People that nobody else would have given a second glance to. Mary had nothing to offer God in the eyes of this world, at least. And yet she gave birth to the Savior of the world. She gave birth to the one that so many of us here this morning proclaim and acknowledge as our King of Kings, as our Lord, as our Savior. You know, this morning, you might look at yourself this morning and you might feel a little bit like Nazareth. You might feel that you're not particularly respectable or respected. Maybe you've got a reputation of a sinful past. You might be like Mary. You might feel really insignificant. What have I got to offer God? I'm not very gifted. The person sitting next to me has got so much more to offer than I have. But you know what? God doesn't measure people based on worldly standards. He doesn't treat us the way that other people treat us. God hasn't chosen me because of my human pedigree. He hasn't chosen you if you've put your trust in him. He hasn't chosen you this morning because of your genetics or because of your ancestry or your titles or anything like that. It doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter what your past was like, how educated you are or not, or how well off you happen to be or not. If you've put your faith and trust in Jesus this morning, then you are a child of God, chosen before this world was even created. And you have been chosen in Him to do great things for Him. And He can do great things for you, just as He did great things through Mary, if you will be obedient to Him. As Mary stood at the foot of the cross of Jesus, she must have really had to cling on to those memories of Gabriel's visitation to her. But it can't have been the first time that she had doubts and questions in fact, I would imagine pretty much you know, right throughout her life, she must have repeatedly wondered, did I get that right? You know, was I imagining that? Is that true? Ever, even soon after Gabriel had visited her, she must have wondered if she had dreamt what had happened to her. Did that really happen? Did God really say that? And how are my parents going to respond when I've got to tell them? What's Joseph going to say? And then as she traveled to Bethlehem and and there was nowhere to stay or to give birth. She must have been so confused, so anxious, and probably utterly terrified. I certainly would have been. I was terrified when Claire gave birth, and I wasn't the one giving birth. It was terrifying for me. It must have been horrendous for Mary, if you think about it. And after she gave birth, the shepherds arrived inquiring where the baby was. But think about it. That must have totally confused Mary and Joseph. How on earth did they know that she had just given birth? And why on earth had they come in the first place? And when asked where they, or how they knew where to come to, they replied that the angel of the Lord or an angel of the Lord had told them that the Savior, Christ the Lord, had been born this very night in the city of David, which was a, one of the names of the city of Bethlehem where Jesus had just been born. What Gabriel had said really was true. Her firstborn son really was the Christ, the Messiah, because these shepherds had heard the same thing that she had heard from Gabriel. And with this, things must have maybe just begun to make sense for Mary. Gabriel had told her that her child would, be the, uh, would one day have the throne of his ancestor, King David, that great famous king of Israel. She and Joseph hadn't intended to come to Bethlehem, but because of the Roman census, they'd found themselves through circumstances there in Bethlehem, the city of David. And maybe now she saw or began to see God's hand behind the census bringing her and Joseph to Bethlehem. But there was another question. Perhaps with the sudden increase in population in Bethlehem that night, there'd be more than one baby. So how did the shepherds know that Mary's baby was the right one? Well, the answer was simple. The angels had given them a sign. They would find the right baby lying in, of all places, a cattle trough, a manger. 
Now, ordinary women don't and didn't put their babies in cattle feeding troughs. And for Mary to do that, it must have been incredibly distressing. Again, every mum dreams of the best, don't they, for their child. And uh, for the very first resting place of her firstborn son, a cattle feeding trough. And yet, here were these shepherds, and according to them, the angels had said that the Son of God was lying in a manger, in a cattle feeding trough, which would be the sign that they had found the right baby. We can be absolutely sure that Jesus was the only baby in Bethlehem that night lying in a cattle feeding trough. And if the angels had used the manger as a sign for the shepherds, another shepherd, a greater shepherd, God himself, must have guided her and Joseph and her baby to the manger in the first place. So we read in Luke 2 verse 19 that when the shepherds told her all this, Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Must have been a bizarre evening for Mary. Must have been a bizarre evening. Mary knew that her son really was the Messiah. And the responsibility for looking after her firstborn son, Jesus, was in higher hands and in greater hands than hers. God himself was in control. As Mary now stood at the foot of the cross of Jesus, I'm sure her mind went back to that stable in Bethlehem. And before that to when Gabriel had appeared to her, as she tried to make sense of what was happening right in front of her eyes to her firstborn son there on the cross. It's unlikely that any of us will ever face a trauma quite like Mary's. But when we do have doubts and questions and anxieties, which we will because that's life, then we need to go back to the promises that God has already made to us, primarily, of course, in the Bible itself. So that despite the pressure and the anxieties and the stress that we often face, with all the doubts and the questions that we often have, we can then cling on in those moments to what we know is true rather than how we feel in the moment. Our feelings will come and go, and Mary's feelings must have gone through an incredible range of emotions as she stood there at the foot of her son's cross. Our feelings will come and go depending on all sorts of factors, whereas what God has said in the Bible about us and about our future and about our identity in Christ will always be true and will never change. And even though our circumstances might say the opposite, it's in those moments that we need to cling on to what we know is true, even if it doesn't feel very true for us, it doesn't look very true for us. Mary must have had all, doubt, all kinds of doubts, all kinds of questions as she stood there looking up, watching her firstborn son there on the cross. Was this how it was really all meant to end? Was God still in control? Had she got it all wrong? Had she imagined it? Had she misheard? And as she stood there, I'm sure her mind also went back to when she and Joseph took Jesus when he was 40 days old up to Jerusalem to the temple and presented him there to be circumcised and then presented him to be offered to God as the firstborn of their family. And they met Simeon and Anna. And Luke tells us this, Simeon took him, that's Jesus, in his arms and praised God saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to be, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Simeon had been waiting all his life for the arrival of the Messiah. 
the Christ, the one that God had promised to send to be the king. But Simeon understood that there was more to the Messiah than just being the king that ruled and reigned. He understood that before that, there was something else that needed to happen. And he says here, my eyes have seen your salvation. Must have been amazing, wouldn't it? To actually have held the Messiah, the salvation that God had promised. Simeon knew that he was holding in his arms the very means by which God was going to bring salvation to those who would give their lives to him. In other words, this child would be the one who would offer forgiveness for sins, peace with God, a relationship with God through himself, and eternal life to all peoples, both Jews and Gentiles, if they put their trust in him. But Simeon also knew that although God would offer these things to everybody free, it wasn't free to God. It was going to cost God everything. It was going to cost him the life of the Messiah. It was going to cost the life of this precious little baby, this baby who was God himself, God come as a human being. And according to Simeon, as he, as he kind of prophesies and speaks to Mary and Joseph, most people were not going to accept this son either. Most people were going to reject Mary's son. In fact, they were going to reject him and speak against him. And then he gives Mary this killer blow, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Yes, he's God's son. Yes, her son is God's salvation. Yes, he's the means by which all mankind be, can be forgiven, get right with God, and have eternal life. And yes, he's going to be the king. Yes, he's going to reign one day in Jerusalem. He is the Messiah, but before there can be a victory, there's got to be a fight. In the words of one poet, before there can be a sunrise, there's got to be a night. Before there's a purchase, there'll be a cost. Before there's a crown, there'll be a cost. I wonder what Mary thought as, Simon, as Simeon rather said these things. As a mother, it certainly wouldn't have been what she would have dreamed of. It wasn't how she would have planned it. To be told that her newborn son was going to, yes, have a massive impact on the world, but only after he'd been opposed and put to death. The end result for Mary would be amazing. She would one day see her son sat at the right hand of God on high, risen from the dead, seated there, and one day coming back to earth and ruling and reigning for all eternity. But I guess she would have preferred it if that was it. If only it was possible for the crown without the cross. But that wasn't God's way. For the Messiah, for Jesus, the, the victory, the crown, the sunrise would all come later, and they would be, and they will be awesome when they happen. But first there was the fight, the cross, and the night. Jesus had to die on the cross, not for anything that he had done wrong. He was the only perfect human being that has ever lived, but for all the wrong things that you have done and I have done. And as Jesus hung there on the cross for three hours of darkness, he absorbed all of the wrath of a holy God for your sin and for my sin. He took it on himself so that we wouldn't have to, so that we could have our sins forgiven, so that we could be made right with God. The old hymn says, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. But in the meantime, God wants us to be aware that if we've trusted in Jesus, then although our ultimate victory is secure, the journey here on earth will often be full of battles. The crown is ahead of us, but the way may include a cross. Nowhere are we promised a life of health and wealth and prosperity. In fact, quite the opposite. Jesus warned those that followed him that they will often face opposition and sometimes persecution. The road to glory with Jesus. In fact, the Bible amazingly tells us that if we put our faith and trust in Jesus, one day we will share his glory. That blows my mind. We don't deserve that, and yet God is going to include us and give us the glory of Jesus, and we're going to share in that. 
But the road to glory with Jesus may include our being treated as Jesus was treated here on earth. The road to glory with Jesus for each one of us may also include rejection, persecution. Jesus said, if they hate me, they'll hate you. We can probably all identify in some way with Mary, our, our hopes and our dreams dashed and swept away because sometimes life just doesn't turn out as we'd hoped, does it? Bereavement, betrayal, divorce, abuse, failing bodies, uh, our lives and sometimes our kids maybe not turning out just the way that we'd have hoped. But the call of God in and through those times is to love Him and to follow Him, and to keep following Him, and to keep going in faith, persevering until either Jesus calls us to go home to be with Him, or when Jesus comes again, whichever happens first. For the follower of Jesus, there is a crown, but there's often a cross in the way, or on the way. There is a victory, but there's also often a lot of struggles on the way. We live in that pre-crown time. Jesus is coming again, but right now we have to get on with life, and the challenge is to fix our eyes on Jesus. As Mary stood watching her firstborn son hanging there on the cross, I'm sure the, the words of Simeon would have come echoing back down to her, a sword will pierce your own soul too. Kind of a metaphor, a picture of how she must have felt as she watched her, own, her, her firstborn son hanging there on the cross. But as she watched Jesus there on the cross, Jesus spoke to her. The Bible puts it like this, when Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, that's John, he said to her, dear woman, here is your son. And he said to, his disciple, he said to this disciple, here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. Jesus had four living brothers that we know of at this point, but they had all rejected him. They accused him of being mad at one point. And it wasn't until after the resurrection that they actually came to believe that he was who he said he was. Up until that point, they had rejected him. They wanted nothing to do with him. They accused him of being mad. But they went on to become part of the early church. They put their faith and trust in Jesus. They went on to become part of the early church. In fact, two of them wrote two of the books in the New Testament, James and Jude, which just shows that it doesn't matter how much a person might have rejected Jesus or have ignored Jesus in the past, if they put their faith and trust in him, they can be forgiven. It doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter how bad we've been. It doesn't matter how much we've rejected Jesus. If we repent, if we come to him and acknowledge our, our wrong and say, I want you to forgive me, then Jesus can forgive anything. Not only can they be forgiven, but God can go on to do great things through them. God can do great things through you and I if we're obedient to him. God did great things through at least two of Jesus' brothers that we know of. They wrote two of the books of the New Testament, James and Jude. Phenomenal, amazing. Men who had rejected Jesus, who probably hated him, they despised him, they rejected him, and they went on to become great men in the church. But in the absence of those brothers who at this point had wanted nothing to do with him, Jesus placed his mother into the care of his disciple John, who was his closest friend. Jesus was about to die, was about to go into death and then rise again, and so his relationship with his mother was about to change forever. Their mother-son relationship was about to come to an end. Jesus, her son, was about to become Jesus, her savior. Because Mary, just like every single other human being that's ever lived, was a sinner and she knew that she needed a savior. In fact, when she has her song of praise back in Luke 2, she calls God her savior. She acknowledges her need of a savior. But Jesus, her son, could only become her savior if he died and then rose again. 
And so Jesus on the cross handed her over to John to look after, no longer his mother. Jesus was going to be returning to heaven via the cross and via the grave. Ultimately, it wasn't Mary's physical relationship to Jesus that mattered. It was her faith relationship. She needed to put her faith and her trust in Jesus just like everybody else. And you know, this morning it may be that you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus. Well, if Mary needed to trust in Jesus, then every single one of us here today also needs to submit to Him and put our faith and trust in Him so that you can be forgiven, have a relationship with God, and receive eternal life. And if that's you this morning, then why not take that step and ask Jesus to be your Lord and your Savior? What an amazing woman and what an amazing mother. As we think of Mother's Day, what an amazing mother Mary must have been. What an amazing example she is to us today. Mary's a wonderful example of how God chooses the least likely people and yet does great things and amazing things through them. And if you trusted in Jesus this morning, then remember that God has, God has chosen you before this world was even created. And He can and He will do great things through you if you will be obedient to Him and let Him do that. As Mary stood and watched her son there on the cross, the knowledge of God's promises and his previous faithfulness must have given her the strength to keep pressing on despite the awfulness of what she was experiencing there at the cross, despite all her questions and her worries and her doubts and, her, and the questions that would be going around her head. The, the challenge for us all this morning is to live our lives and make our decisions based upon what we know is true from God's Word rather than our feelings and our current circumstances. If this morning, like Jesus' brothers, you've been rejecting Jesus up until this point, then can I encourage you, like them and even like Mary herself, to put your faith and trust in Him? No matter how much you might have rejected Jesus in the past, if you'll put your faith and your trust in Him, He will forgive you and He'll welcome you into God's family. Let's just bow our heads as we reflect on what we've said this morning. The Holy Spirit is speaking to you this morning, whatever that might be about, whether it's something that's been said or something completely different. Can I encourage you to do business with God this morning? Father, we thank you for Mary. Thank you for choosing somebody who was completely normal and ordinary and needed a savior, and yet you chose her and you did great things through her. Thank you for choosing her to be the, the mother of the savior of the world. Lord Jesus, thank you that you came and became a human being and lived and died and went into death and rose again for each one of us. Thank you for all that you have done for us and can do for us. Father, we worship you this morning. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to watch and listen to a song up on the screen called Thorns in the Straw. And then um, after this, uh, Matt will come and lead us in communion. Thanks.
Since the day the angel came, it seemed that everything had changed. The only certain thing was the child that moved within on the road that would not end, winding down to Bethlehem. So far away from home Just a blanket on the floor Of a vacant cattle store But there the child was born She held him in her arms And as she laid him down to sleep She wondered, will it always be? So bitter Shall conceive God with us, Prince of Peace. Man of sorrow, strangest name. Oh, Joseph, there it comes again. So bitter, yet so sweet. And did she see? She watched him through the years Her joy was mingled with her tears And she'd feel it all again The glory and the shame And when the miracles began She wondered, who is this man? And where will this all end? Until against the darkening sky dying breath she heard him say father forgive and to the criminal beside today with me in paradise so bitter yet so sweet and did she see
Kendi şehir 